The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, thank you very much. It is indeed a, a delight for me to be with you. <laughs> Excuse me. Assuming my voice holds up. Some of you who are uh, prayer warriors, kick in gear right now. <clears throat> right right here. Um, no, I really am delighted to be with you. Um, I, as I mentioned during the Sunday school hour, I'm, I'm regularly amused that God uh, uh, uses me to encourage people to share their faith because I'm reluctant to do that. I'm an evangelistic chicken, as I shared uh, earlier. Um, I, I was reminded of this pretty boldly. Um, uh, not too long ago, I was riding Metro on my way downtown to Washington, D.C. It was uh, pretty much rush hour. The cars were all packed in, and uh, we came to a stop. Doors opened. Someone came in. Right as the doors closed, this man who had just come in um, announced in a very loud voice, may I have your attention, please? And he got our attention. He certainly got my attention. I was sitting very, very close to the door where he was. I was sitting on an aisle seat. And I, I, I thought, oh, he's got our attention because this is Metro. People don't do that. Pe people don't make loud announcements on Metro. In fact, I've noticed people don't talk on Metro. It's not a real rule, but it's an unspoken rule. And you don't. You read your Washington Post. You, 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 you don't even talk to the person next to you. And yet this man wanted to talk to all of us. And as if that didn't get our attention enough, the woman sitting right across the aisle from me started screaming, no, no. I thought, we're going to be on the 11 o'clock news. Uh, this is not going well. And he reached into his pocket. I thought, did I tell my wife I love her? I, I, I hope she knows that. Um, he pulled out a book. He opened it up and he began to sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, everybody exhaled. Many people rolled their eyes. Everybody went back to their Washington Post. Everybody except the woman sitting next to me who continued to scream, stop, shut up. It was the oddest duet I've ever heard. <clears throat> Did you know that hymn has four verses? Anyway, um, um, uh, she, he, he, this is my story, no it's not. Uh, I love Jesus, shut up. It was like, whoa. Um, eventually, we got to the very next stop. The doors opened. He said, have a nice day. He got out. The doors closed. Everybody looked at the woman who was sitting next to me who was beet red at this point. She said, I have to put up with that every day. I said, oh, he does this daily. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I bet a lot of people think that's what evangelism is. And I'll bet a whole lot of Christians think, if that's evangelism, I ain't ever doing it. <laughs> I certainly thought that about me. I thought, if, this, if that's the only option you got there, I'm looking elsewhere. I also believe that more and more people in our society would be like this woman who would like to tell us to just shut up. How in the world do we do evangelism in a world that expects us to be the kind of people who stand up and sing on subway cars 
but they would like to tell us to shut up. Now, by the way, if you feel called that the Lord has given you a ministry to sing on Metro cars, may the Lord bless you. It's great, it's wonderful. My guess is that most of us would say, that's probably not me. How do non-evangelists, non-singers on subway cars, how do we tell our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers the best news that could ever be announced? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning, and we'll also do a little more Q&A about it afterwards uh, over lunch. Um, but I want to say that we do it with tension, with tensions, with four tensions in particular. And the passage that was read from the book of Colossians is what I want us to zoom in on. Um, I want us to think about what does it mean to live out a, a Christ-centered faith in a world that seems very, very far from it. So, um, please turn to Colossians 4 or look at the passage as it's written out for you in the bulletin. We did read this, didn't we? No, we didn't read this yet. Okay. I need to pay attention to my own sermon. How sad. Some of you now are praying even more diligently. <laughs> Help him focus. Um, the book of Colossians is a wonderful book about the greatness of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, how he's not just a good teacher. He is God himself in the flesh. And uh, Paul begins this book with some of the loftiest language about Jesus that we did read from Colossians chapter 1. Um, he is before all things. All things were made through him and for him. Did you catch that little phrase in the passage that we did read together? All things were made for Jesus. That's astonishing. I, I grew up in a Jewish home where we heard that Jesus was just a teacher, just a rabbi. And yet when I first read the Gospels and when I first started thinking seriously about what Jesus claimed about himself and what the New Testament claims about Jesus, I thought, oh no, he's not just a rabbi. He's not just a good teacher. He is a great teacher. He's the greatest teacher ever, but he's God in the flesh. He claimed that he always existed. He claimed that he always would exist. He claimed to be um, the Messiah, the one promised hundreds and thousands of years before he stepped onto this earth. And so Colossians 1 is filled with some of the loftiest language about Jesus, including um, the statement that all things were created for him. Everything that exists, exists ultimately uh, for the purpose of bringing glory to Jesus, to point people to Jesus. That's astonishing. In chapter 2, Paul then goes further and looks at what does it mean to be in Christ? If we are people who have crossed over from unbelief to belief, from doubt to faith, from trusting in ourselves for our own goodness, but trusting in what he did for his finished work of salvation for us by dying on the cross, then, then we have received fullness, it says in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. All, um, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in him, and in him we have been made complete. And then, as so often with Paul's letters, he turns the corner and he starts saying, now here's how it starts making a difference in your life. It's not just a set of beliefs, it's something that transforms and changes everything about you. At the beginning of chapter three, it says it changes the way we think about ourselves. It changes the way we handle temptations for sin. It changes how we interact with people around us, particularly within the body of Christ, within the church. But then it starts making a difference even in, in, within our family, with husbands and wives and parents and children and in the workplace. And now we come to chapter four, where it says that this gospel message, this belief in who Jesus is, it changes the way we interact with people that we would call outsiders, people who hold a different worldview. So now take a look at Colossians 4, 2 through 6. 
after this long uh, statement about who Jesus is and how he makes a difference, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer, how you ought to answer each person. Four tensions in this passage that I think help us wrestle with how do we tell this good news to a world that may not want to hear. The first tension, duality, if you will, is the the tension or the pairing of prayer and proclamation. You see it in the text there. Paul tells us to continue steadfastly in prayer, but then almost immediately without taking a break, he shifts to talking about um, opening up a door for the word. Uh, Several writers have put it this way, we talk to God about people, then we talk to people about God. We pray and ask God to open up doors. We pray and ask that God would soften hearts. We pray that God would open up people's ears. We pray that God would work in our hearts so that we would have compassion for people, that we would become bolder than we ordinarily are by our own personality or temperament. And we pray that this um, gospel message will go forth. Here, it's very important to realize when, we, when we, we engage in ordinary human conversations about the gospel, we're stepping into the realm of the supernatural. There's something that's happening there that's very human, interpersonal. People ask questions, we listen, we converse. But there's something absolutely supernatural of God opening up people's eyes and drawing them to himself. And so it's prayer and proclamation. We pray and ask God to work. We uh, think through what are the best ways to word this, what are ways to express this. It's prayer and proclamation. So I want to encourage you more than anything else to have a regular practice of praying for people around you who do not know Jesus. Pray for them by name. Um, Ask God to work in their hearts. Ask God to work so that they would be dissatisfied about life without the gospel. Make a list. Find a a way that that regularly works its way into your prayer time. Perhaps some of you have a set prayer time every day and you have a a journal or a list or something, a list of people's names. By the way, this this, um, presupposes that you know their names. (laughs) Uh, I was recently um, hmm, humbled humiliated, challenged by the fact that I I don't know all of my neighbors' names. I'm trying to get to know them. I figured, now, by the way, God can answer our prayers even if we don't know their names because God does. Okay, sure. But I'm more likely to pray for them if I know them by their name. Uh, By the way, I I am reluctant to do this um, because I'm pretty sure God will answer prayer. Hmm. Bummer. Um, but so, so I pray for them, but I also pray for myself. Lord, would you work in me so that I would be more bold, that I would be more caring? 
So I want to encourage you, find a way to have that list worked into your life. By the way, um, it's interesting the way Paul says this. He tells us to continue steadfastly in prayer. And he tells us to be watchful and to be thankful. Think about that a little bit. Why would he need to tell us to continue steadfastly unless it's easy to quit? Isn't it? If there's one thing I've learned about prayer, it's, it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to think, is this really working? I'm, I mean, I'm praying to an invisible God about invisible things that I can't measure um, in a world that's very concrete and solid and material. And after a while you go, I don't know. So that's why Jesus told us several stories that we would continue. Remember there's stories about people knocking on doors and keep knocking, keep knocking, and people who keep coming before a judge. That there must be something in the essence of prayer that makes it easy to quit. And so don't be surprised if you lose heart. Now, Paul does give us a couple of things in here that help us uh, to keep going. One is to be watchful and one is to pray with thanksgiving. So I, I think the watchfulness is we pray and then we watch to look and see how God is working. We start looking in the invisible realms to see that perhaps God is orchestrating a way for us to take steps to reach out to people. So we, we watch for the answers to prayer. It makes us expectant. But then on the other side is we give thanks when in fact we do see answers to prayer. Um, Do you have some kind of journal where you write a date and a date that you prayed prayers and then when God answers, you give a a date and here's the answer? If you keep a written tab of those kind of things, you're more likely to think, oh, I should keep going. If you don't write it down, it is easy to forget that you even prayed the prayer or at least I know some person who struggles with that. And, um, but, but when you see lines filled in on the side of the page, then where there's still a blank, you're motivated to keep praying. So I encourage you to be watchful and thankful because that's exactly what Paul is saying here. So prayer and proclamation is the first tension. Now about proclamation, there's a whole lot in this passage about words, which leads to our second tension. And that's the tension of words and deeds. You see a lot in this passage, don't you, about words? It's that, um, that God may open up a door for the word to declare. Declare, that's a verb, but that's what you do with words. Um, it's a pray that I may make it clear. So there must be some words that are unclear. Uh, uh, let your speech be graced with salt. We'll talk about that later. So there's a whole lot in here about words. And the essence of evangelism is communicating words. But do you also see in this text, he says in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Um, The way you live your life, the way you walk, the way you carry out your business, the way you do things has to be in line with this gospel message. We need both words and deeds. Um, By the way, sometimes people get into debates about which one's more important. Which is more important, proclaiming words about the gospel or living out the gospel with our deeds? I think that's a silly debate. Um, I think that's like arguing which wing on the airplane is more important. Um, I, I fly a lot and I always want both wings to be perfect, <laughs> pristine. Um, I, I, if, if, 
All right, let's just play with this. I don't ever do this. Imagine if the pilot gets on and says, the left wing is excellent. The right, we're having some problems, but eh, good enough. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Cut that out of the, if they record this, how sad. Um, words or deeds. No, no, I mean, if, if it's all words, but you're living like a jerk or your actions don't display righteousness and goodness, then people will reject your words, and that's happening all the time. But if it's all deeds and they never connect, you never say why you act the way you do, people will not connect your niceness, your kindness, your uprightness to the specific message of Jesus died on the cross. They'll, they'll just think you do a lot of good exercise. You stretch a lot, you drink a lot of water, you're a vegetarian, I don't know. They'll come up with lots of different, I, I hope I didn't insult vegetarians, it's really fine, it's okay. Um, but, but people will not, here, let me try to push this a little further. Let's say you have um, new neighbors, they move in next door, new next door neighbors, and you think, let's welcome them to the neighborhood, let's bake a plate of chocolate chip cookies and bring it over. Great, I like this, good idea, I'm all in favor. And so you bring them, so welcome to the neighborhood, is there anything we we can do to help you, so glad to have you. Here's a plate of chocolate chip cookies. Here's what will not happen. You'll walk out the door and they'll look at the cookies and they'll say, I know why they brought those to us. They must believe in a God who's holy and righteous and yet they themselves are sinful and separated from God. It's, it's not as if God's arm is so short that he cannot save, but their sins and their wickedness has made a separation between them and their God. But God, in his grace and his mercy, sent his son, his only begotten son, to be a sacrifice, an atonement, a propitiation. They won't say that, no matter how good the cookies are. I shared this at one place and someone said, so should we put, should we slip tracts in, in between the cookies? <laughs> per, 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 perhaps. Um, or, now, and by the way, I'm not saying you should deliver the chocolate cookies when they're new neighbors and say, and by the way, let me tell you why we're doing this. Jesus died on the cross. I, that may not be the time. But sooner or later, you, there has to be a connection between the niceness and the amazing grace of God in the specific work of what Jesus did on the cross. So we need both words and deeds. Um, I'm going to push this a little further. Some of you may have seen posters or t-shirts that say uh, something like, um, uh, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. Have any of you seen this poster at all? Okay, I, I won't ask what you think. I'll just tell you I'm not a big fan. Um, sometimes people say that's a quote of uh, Francis of Assisi. And I've done some research and found I don't, I don't think Francis said that. Some of you said, really, you do research on this? Yes, I'm a nerd. And, um, and I'm a senior teaching fellow, and that's what senior teaching fellows do. Um, but I, I think Francis wrote some things like, make sure your actions back up your words. Yeah, we would agree. Um, but I, I think somehow if Francis of Assisi was here and we said, you know that quote you did about uh, uh, preach the gospel all the times, when necessary, use words, I think he would start laughing. I think he would say, when necessary, it's always necessary to use words. In fact, we know Francis was this loud, bold evangelist. We have historical documents of people complaining about how loud he was. I find that strangely encouraging. And um, 
So I think uh, don't fall for the lines that if, well, if we just love people, they'll see Jesus in us. Well, they, they, they might, but they'll still need to hear who that Jesus is and what he did on the cross and that his resurrection conquers death and that they too can be uh, uh, forgiven of their sins and granted eternal life if they place their trust in him. So that's the second tension. Uh, we've got uh, prayer and proclamation, uh, words and deeds. Third one is uh, grace and salt. Do you see it there in verse six? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Well, I think we, I think we can understand the idea about speech being gracious. It's kind, it's gentle, it's friendly, it's inviting, it's winsome. Uh, we need to find ways to tell people that we think the gospel message is good news. Um, there's a lot of emphasis in our, in our world of, of we need to tell people that it's true, and we do need to. So yes, the gospel is true. It really is based on a historical event that actually did happen. Jesus really did say those things that are recorded for us in the gospels. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Uh, these, these are things we can know with confidence. Um, but, but, it, but it's also good news that we're forgiven of our sins. Uh, I like what was said earlier in your service uh, th that um, uh, we're, we're worse than we think and yet we're more loved than we ever dared believe. You know that, that duality? Um, our, uh, our sin tells us that, that we're more wicked than we ever would have admitted. But in the gospel, we're more loved and accepted than we could have ever even dreamed. It's wonderful. And we need to find ways to tell people that we think this is just so good. It's almost beyond belief. Um, but it also needs to have salt with it, and that's uh, discussed and debated a whole lot. There's something about salt that makes it sting a little bit, or makes us thirsty for more, or makes us intrigued to hear more. Um, uh, some uh, old uh, first century writings implied that salt was a way to describe uh, the book of Proverbs and wisdom literature in the Old Testament. You know how Proverbs would say something just kind of real short and pithy, and you're like, wait a minute, wait, 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 let me hear more about that. So we, we need to find ways to tell people about our beliefs um, where we don't dump it all at once. We say some things that are intriguing that make them want to hear more. I know you want to hear an example, so let me share one. <clears throat> all that talk about salt made me thirsty. Ha ha. Um, uh, some of you have, been, have heard about uh, Tim Keller and his uh, uh, writings, a number of books that he's written. He was a pastor who started Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City uh, 25 years ago or more. Um, he, he said, I've heard him tell this story a number of times. When he first moved to New York City, uh, all sorts of people found out they were starting a new church and they wanted to know, well, what kind of church are you? Because in New York, they had some churches that were always yelling about hellfire and flames. And then there were other churches that never talked about that, but it was always about love your neighbor. And was, so which one, they wanted a pigeonhole. What, what kind of church is Redeemer gonna be? Is it gonna be one of those churches or one of those churches? And he found that regularly people asked him about hell. Are you, are you one of those churches that believes in hell? Are you one of those churches that believes that people are gonna burn in hell with fire? And, and Keller really wrestled with, how, how do I answer this question that doesn't just shut down the conversation? 
How, how do I answer this question? Because Heller, Keller does believe in hell and does believe that it is what Jesus says it is. Jesus is the one who talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. So, so he d does believe it, but he just knew that if he just answered with a quick, yep, we're one of those churches, that would shut down conversation. So he said, he said, I came up with this idea, try to, try to spark a conversation. He said, I would say to people, well, you know, we, th we, we think that maybe um, all of that uh, talk in uh, the New Testament about hell with fire, that it could be a kind of metaphor. And people would go, oh, good, you're not one of those crazy fundamentalists. Like, okay, good, you, you don't take everything literally. And then he would quickly jump and he says, and, and if, if it is a metaphor, it's a metaphor for something far worse than fire. What? Well, if, if Jesus is right about what he says about hell, it's, it's separation forever from everything good about God. That's horrible. To be totally and completely cut off forever from God's love and his grace and his mercy. Fire doesn't even begin to say how horrible that is. And he, would, he said he found that, that was, those were better conversations. We need to find ways to engage people in conversation so that they go, wait, 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 this is different than I thought it was. Wait, wait, this, is, this isn't what I thought. Um, uh, let, allow me to share a personal story. I've, I've reached the uh, stage of life where I'm, I'm finding an increasing number of opportunities to witness to um, people in the medical professions. <laughs> uh, oh, good, yeah. Um, so years ago, I was having all sorts of pain in my back and uh, I went to this doctor and they said, oh, you need to get these injections in your spine. Nothing could have scared me more. And he said, don't worry, it's just three, three. And so they do it, they give you one shot and then two weeks later you come back for another one, two weeks later you come back for another one. I, I thought this was the end of my life. And, um, but they said it'll take the pain away, which it did for a month. And then it came back, so I need to have surgery. <laughs> anyway, anyway, to, God has used that in wonderful ways. Um, so, but so same doctor, same anesthesiologist, and uh, and his assistant uh, three times in a row. And so you come in the first time, and they like to strike up a conversation with you, right? As they're about to stick you, um, they they call this speech anesthesia. It doesn't work. Anyway, so, so they, they give you this pillow to hold, to hunch over, and a nurse stands over here with her hand on her shoulder, don't worry, it's gonna be okay. To which I usually say, how do you know? And the doctor is behind preparing the site, that's what they say. And so they strike up conversation, oh, Mr. Newman, what do you do for a living? Oh, no. <clears throat> I could have said I work for a crusade, but I didn't think that would be a good, uh, at the time I worked for Campus Crusade, I told him I was in Christian ministry. Oh, that's fascinating. I thought, no, it's not, believe me. And um, so they would ask about, you know, what you do for a living and all this kind of stuff. And then two weeks later, you come back and they bring on the conversation some more. Mr. Newman, so you're religious. Right now, amazingly so. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, whatever. So the third time, they think by now that, that I'm not scared anymore, which is not true. Um, and so they, they strike up a conversation between the two and the doctor on this side, the nurse on this side, the doctor said, you know, when I was in high school, I went to this church and all they talked about was going to hell. If you dance, you're going to go to hell. If you drank, you're going to go to hell. If you smoked, you're going to go to hell. You know, I came home, I told my mother about that. She danced, she drank, she smoked. She didn't like any of that. And so, you know, what do you think about that? And the nurse says, oh yeah, I went to one of those churches too. I think that's ridiculous. And they both say kind of the same thing. Well, Mr. Newman, what do you think? 
I'll tell you exactly what I thought. I thought, not now. I don't want to talk about Jesus now. I want to talk to Jesus. Jesus, keep me alive. <clears throat> I really didn't know what I was going to say. I was, I, I, so I said, I said, you know, I'd really like to talk about this, which is probably a lie. But I, I said, uh, you know, but I'm just a little preoccupied right now. And they said, oh, okay, we, we can talk about this when we're finished. And then I thought, okay, what am I going to say? What am I? So I bought myself some time, which is not a bad strategy. And, and I thought, okay, what am I going to say? They think my religion is just a bunch of stupid rules. And I thought, that's probably what a whole lot of people think. But what am I going to say? What, how, how am I going to try to distinguish this great, wonderful message of the gospel from their idea that it's just a bunch of stupid rules? So they have to stick around for a little while after they give you this shot because they want to make sure you don't die. And, um, and, and I didn't. Uh, okay, so, uh, so, um, so, so Mr. Newman, what do you think about that? What do you think about all those rules? I said, well, you know, I, I think we like rules because if we keep them, we feel really good about ourselves. And if we know people who don't keep them, then we can feel really bad about them, which makes us feel better about ourselves. I said, but you know, I, the, the stuff I need forgiveness for is a whole lot worse than the stuff on those lists. I said, you know, the, the stuff I need forgiveness for is just you know, anger and bitterness and judgmentalism and, and their eyes are getting bigger and bigger and I think, I'm just getting started. <laughs> it's a whole lot worse than that. It, it is, isn't it? If we're really honest. If, if we're not just talking about the sins we commit, but, but we're talking about the attitudes behind those sins, the attitudes of superiority, the attitudes of I'm above the law, I'm above God, it's horrible. It's, it's so horrible, it, it needs the extreme solution of the cross. My sin is so bad that nothing short of the death of the Son of God could possibly atone for stuff that bad. I didn't preach all of that to them. That's what was going on in my mind. I, I said to them, the stuff I need forgiveness for is so much worse than things on those lists. And then I said, that's what I love about Christianity. I have forgiveness for that kind of stuff. Now, I don't know all that they were thinking, but I'm pretty sure the way they responded, that that was different than what they thought Christianity was. And I think that that's an example of grace and salt. We need to find ways to tell people about what we believe so that it almost, it, we, we almost get choked up in the middle of it. That would be wonderful, by the way, if sometime you're telling someone about your belief and you have to stop to try to find the right words because it's so good. We need to find ways that are grace and salt. One more tension. So, prayer and proclamation, words and deeds, grace and salt. One more, um, reception and rejection. Some people receive this, some people reject it. Some people hear it and say, tell me more. Some people hear it and go, yeah, 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 yeah. We wouldn't have a book of the to the Colossians if some people didn't receive it. And in fact, Paul reminds them back in chapter one, he says, all over the world, this gospel is producing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you. And he said, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a fellow minister. In other words, you believe this stuff. But in the passage that, was, that, that we're focusing on in chapter four, Paul says, because of the proclaiming of this, he's in prison. Some people reject it, some people receive it. We shouldn't be surprised.
And so as we tell people, if they reject us, we shouldn't be surprised, we should still keep praying. We should maybe make that prayer request of their name in our list a little bit bolder, circled in red. It's amazing, there are so many stories of people who when they first heard the gospel, they rejected it, but it stuck. And something in it made them wonder and wonder. And years, sometimes decades later, they came to faith. So if people reject what you have to say, don't give up on praying for them. One of my favorite stories, um, I, I interview a lot of people to hear about how people come to faith. I'm particularly interested in people who witness to family members and how that goes, because that's a longer, more difficult process, it seems. Um, I remember talking to this one woman who became a Christian when she was in high school um, through a youth group ministry, probably similar to what this church has, a uh, youth group, and uh, she became a Christian when she was 16 years old. She came home and told her parents, no, 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 they're not interested. She tried talking to her parents for decades, I'm not exaggerating, when her father was now alone in his 80s, living in a retirement home, kind of a recluse, didn't really like uh, talking to people. Some, peop some new people in the community started inviting him to church every single week. No, 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 I don't do that stuff. My daughter goes to church. I don't do that. No, leave me alone. But they kept asking. They kept inviting. And uh, so they, they invited him finally on uh, for Easter service. He figured, oh, well, okay, if you're going to go one time a year, that's the time to go. And so he goes and he hears this message that Jesus rose from the dead, that he died to pay for sins. And the pastor said, if you're here today and you've never believed this and you want to begin this relationship, you can today come forward. And this guy comes forward. He's in his 80s. He, he, he comes down forward. He calls his daughter later that afternoon. You know what he said? He said, you never told me he rose from the dead. She told me, I told him dozens of times. Are you kidding? I'd send him books about the resurrection. He just kept saying, no, no, no. And at the right time, he said yes. So I say, let's keep telling people. Let's find ways to tell them. Let's pray that God opens up doors. Let's pray that God opens up doors and that other people will say the same things we've been trying to say. And who knows, maybe more and more and more people will respond. <laughs> they might even want to sing, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the people that you place around us. It's no accident. Um, would you help us to know their names? Would you help us to pray for them? Would you work in their hearts so that they would become hungry for you? Would you use this church in the proclaiming of that good news so that more and more people will hear it? And would you uh, use us in the building of your kingdom so that more and more people will sing and rejoice with us, singing praise to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these prayers. Amen.